When you Google my name, do you know what comes up? Best-selling author Dr. Gad Saad is a man of science, logic, and common sense. Not to pat myself on the back, but if Google wants to say it, who am I to stop them? What I can confirm is that I take a thoughtful, logical approach to my work and also my finances. That's why I'm so excited about Masterworks, the premier platform for investing in blue-chip artwork. The kinds of multi-million dollar pieces that billionaires collect, like Picasso, Monet, and Basquiat. You don't need a PhD to know that these pieces can make great investments. Contemporary art prices outpaced the S&P 500 by nearly three times from 1995 to 2020. But everyday people like you and me have been locked out of this exclusive world. Masterworks lets you invest in a fraction of these pieces so you don't need to write a $30 million check for the whole thing. And with over 260,000 members, $300 million in art, and countless features in the Wall Street Journal, Fox Business, Bloomberg, and more, they've got quite an impressive track record. That's not even considering the billion-dollar valuation they just received from venture capital investors. The Wall Street Journal reported recently that art is one of the hottest markets on earth and that the ultra-rich will see bigger paydays from art than stocks, real estate, or private equity. Luckily for all of you, I've partnered with Masterworks to give my listeners priority access. Just head to my link at masterworks.io slash sad truth. That's masterworks.io slash sad truth. I'll see you there. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Hey guys, another fantastic guest today. He's invited me many times on his show, so I thought it was only appropriate that I finally reciprocate and invite him on my show. Buck Sexton, how are you doing, sir? Mr. Gad, how are you? Uh, very well, very well. It's a real pleasure having you on. Let me mention to the people who may not know who you are, uh, I pulled this little bio out. So you are the host of the Buck Sexton Show, three-hour national radio show syndicated to 160-plus affiliates. We'll talk about whether that's still going to happen given your recent uh, contract. Uh, you're also the host of Hold the Line on the first TV. It's a one-hour show. You will be replacing Rush Limbaugh's irreplaceable spot along with Clay Travis. This will be called the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Show. You worked at CNN. I'm sorry to hear that. Maybe we'll talk about that. We will. And then, uh, now this, I'm taking this verbatim from uh, one of your bios. So Sexton previously served as a CIA officer in the Counterterrorism Center and the Office of Iraq Analysis. He completed tours of duty as an intelligence officer in Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as other hotspots around the world. He also served as in the New York Police Department Intelligence Division. So all kinds of really cool stuff to talk about. Where should we start? Should we start with your most recent show? I think it's not airing yet, right? It's, it will soon, correct? Yeah, so the, the new show, my my syndicated radio show, The Buck Sexton Show, is being taken over, that slot, time slot's being taken over by Jesse Kelly's a good friend of mine, a colleague at the first. On June 21st, I will be starting with Clay Travis in the 12 to 3 slot for Premier Networks. Uh, which is going to be almost 400 stations across the country. 
So it'll either be the number one or number two largest by audience radio show in America on day one. So it's pretty exciting. We're looking forward to that. Wow. And, and I suspect that once you'll have me on as a repeat guest, it will guarantee that it will be the number one show, correct? We're going to do a special segment called The Gab Damn Truth, and it's going to be amazing. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, by the way, June 21st is the date that you'll be starting the show. I'm presuming that it's not a coincidence that you chose the same date as when I defended my doctoral dissertation at Cornell University, June 21st, 1994. So what you're doing effectively is honoring me by doing this show, correct? I think there's no question about it. I mean, we didn't have to go too deep into the archives to find Dr. Sad's thesis. So that's, that's how we roll. There you go. I love it. Okay. You know what? I, what I'd love to, to talk, at least we'll do the CIA stuff and, and, and so on later, but I think your original break was through Rush Limbaugh, right? There's a story there, correct? Um, well, my original, original break was through Glenn Beck, actually. Oh, so Glenn so Beck. Glenn Beck hired me I was going to go to business school, believe it or not, just because I wanted to not work for the government anymore because, you know, you have to be of a certain temperament to do a career. It's one thing to do government service as as some people would do military service, as in they, they show up, they do it five years, 10 years. But if you're going to be a lifer, uh, you got to really have a particular uh, temperament and, and sense of, of your future. So you have to be willing to allow your life to be determined by the government because that's what it means to be a, certainly a lifetime CIA employee. So anyway, I want to get out. Glenn Beck's uh, new president of theblaze.com heard about me, asked to have a coffee with me. I had already – I had put down $5,000 to hold my place at NYU Stern. Uh, I was – waiting to hear from third round from the Wharton School of Business in Philadelphia. And it was all, everything was, you know, was coming together. And by the way, $5,000 to me, I actually cashed out my 401k at that point in my life just to have the money to apply to business school and get all this stuff done because it's expensive. You got to buy these books and everything. And I was making no money working with the government. Uh, so five grand for, for the holding, the, I had a t-shirt that NYU gave me, I'll never forget. And I call my $5,000 t-shirt. I sat down with Glenn's president, a woman named Betsy Morgan, who had been the CEO of The Blaze. And she said, uh, you shouldn't go to business. I went to business school. You shouldn't go to business school. You should come work here. And I said, okay. I, I, we, this is after we talked for about an hour. And then she said, you know, you, we're, we're going to get you to talk to Glenn, Glenn Beck. And I said, all right. So I went into Glenn's, you know, big corner office in Midtown with, uh, you know, sweeping views of the city. And we just sat there for an hour and talked about all things conservative, conservative media, everything. And at the end, he's just like, you're, you're, you're coming to work for us. And I was like, Glenn, I'm all in. Let's do it. So that's what wow. happened. That was the original break. And then after doing uh, – in 2014, so I had been working for The Blaze for three years, I got to fill in for Rush for the first time. So seven years ago, I filled in at the uh, EIB Golden Mike, and now I am occupying – we don't use we never use the R word replace because there's no replacing, as you know, I'm occupying the radio space with my co-host, Clay Travis, formerly a formerly built into a, dyna, a dynastic empire uh, by the one and only Rush Limbaugh. So that's where we are. So, I mean, I want to I want to mention something about Glenn Beck in a second, because I've, I've gotten to know him also quite well. But uh, I mean, what that story, uh, I mean, the lesson here is that 
life is full of serendipity. You had never thought about, you know, becoming a media person. You were going to business school, but okay, that's fine. But how is there an a priori trajectory that you know someone looks at Buck Sexton says, I want to do exactly what he's doing. And is there a recipe by which I can aspire? Or is it really just get out there and hopefully somebody notices you like that person heard of you and then we take it from there? Well, you know, there, there's the, the story of me getting into media and then there's the story of what I've had to do in the media. And, and so look, some people have a moment where they, and then this will go to go directly to your question. Some people have a moment where they they take off, they go viral, they become a thing. You know, I've had a number of media colleagues who all of a sudden, you know, within a very short period of time, they, they become a household name or they do something that really gets them a lot of attention. I, uh, I was like a, uh, a trench warfare guy in media, meaning I just had to always grind it out. I did at my absolute peak, I did over for over a year, I was doing five hours a day of solo radio and an hour a day of TV, which I will tell you is not healthy and not something I'd recommend anybody else do. But that's the level of tenacity uh, and, and the willingness to just go all out that I've had to do. You know, other people, they they're in the right place at the right time with a new platform. They start they started building on YouTube, for example, before. That was a thing people thought you could really make money with and, you know, whatever. There's a lot of things. And by the way, being in the right place at the right time and making those decisions, I mean, that's really I, I don't say that uh, to, to in any way uh, undermine that or tear it down. I, I think that's the goal. <laughs> right. What I'm trying to say is if someone wants to do media, make sure you, you find your angle and, and you know how you're going to be unique and that you and that you love the day to day work of it, because my experience of it has been. Uh, getting kicked in the teeth a lot, uh, getting opportunities. I, I know this sounds weird because I just got put in the rush slot, but it's been 10 years. Right. And for for 10 years, there have been a lot of things that didn't. The rush thing is huge, obviously. And this is a, it's a game changer. It's amazing. But a lot of things didn't go my way, Gad. And uh, things that should have opportunities that I should have been given. Now, I don't say this to wine. I bring this up again. Anybody who wants to do this, you know, I was told this by a longtime news media guy. If you think about fair in this business, you're going to become so frustrated you can't do it anymore. There is no fair. And that has been my experience with it. So just anybody who wanted to go into this, think about that. And then also if you have a wife and a mortgage or a wife and or a mortgage and kids, um, don't do it. I took a. To go work for Glenn, I mean, this is a part of the story that I don't usually tell people. I took a pay cut from the government to go work at TheBlaze.com. Right. Wow. Well, when you when you mentioned the the grinding element, it reminded me of uh, Megan Kelly because I'm actually appearing on her show. At least we're taping it this Friday. I'm very excited to to talk to her, and she'll be coming on my show in, in August. She mentions often how much you know uh, she had to grind it out to eventually so pe you know people kind of think of it as if you know you're an overnight star sensation but you people don't realize that in your case you spent 10 years i don't know how long she spent but tenacity and doggedness is really a central feature of success in anything so for example you take in, in, in academia if you want to publish a peer-reviewed paper Probably the number one thing beyond having a good idea to publish is to just have the tenacity to go through the peer review process because you're going to be put through the grinder to get a paper accepted. So I guess the lesson is be dogged, be a honey badger, and then hopefully you'll get your big break, right? 
Oh, the, mo- the, the things that I thought, uh, the things that I thought were critical to success in life when I was in my 20s, I've learned are nice things to have. But now that I'm basically 40, so I went through my 30s, and you know, your, your 20s, I feel like you get to ma- you get to make some mistakes. You can't make, it's like investing in the stock market. You gotta avoid catastrophic mistakes. Like you gotta avoid the elimination of all your capital, but you're gonna make mistakes. Uh, career-wise, personally, you get into your 30s and all of a sudden you realize, you know, and God, I know you're a man of, what, 34, 35 years exactly. of age, so you understand, you understand exactly. what I'm talking about. Exactly. You get into your 30s and all of a sudden it's, uh, now, now people care. Now this is real. Who am I? What am I really doing? And what I learned over that process, too, is that uh, endurance, persistence, and humility all right. If you give me those three things, or if you give me, if you show me a person who has those three traits, uh, I think their ability to not just be, to not just find success, but to find a a well balanced and, and meaningful existence is is very. The odds are in their favor. That's what I would say. Whereas I used to think God that it was brilliance, panache, swagger. You know. Uh, Skill, all these, you know, all these things you think about. Oh, I'm so good at this, or I've got this great dad, or whatever. And not about myself. I mean, this in a very general sure, sense, sure. Not even about myself. Um, yeah, that stuff is cool. A lot of people have that. A lot of people are really smart. You know, everybody. I told my little brother this when he was looking for uh, for jobs out of college because he was thinking about doing some more service oriented stuff. And I was like, look, if you want to do service oriented stuff, go for it. But everybody works hard. You show up in a nine to five job and someone can tell you what to do, when you can go home, what holidays you can work. You're, you're going to process that as like, I'm working hard. So then it's, what do you want in exchange for that? The value of the job or just the value of the paycheck or the combination thereof? And it's important to be honest with yourself about it. But do you think there are certain personality traits that one must possess to be a good conversationalist in you know on these different media platforms. So for example, let's take Joe Rogan, okay? So, you know, here's a guy who didn't have a set trajectory that could predict why he would become so successful, but certainly what he does possess if I'm if I were to analyze some of his skill set and someone who of course knows him personally, he's a friend of mine. Uh, I've been on the show many times. Uh He's open, right? He has, he probably scores off the charts on, you know, uh, the, the openness of, you know, the big five traits. Open in the sense that he's willing to hold conversations with a wide range of people. He, he, he could talk to a, a fancy professor, just like he can drop the F word every second sentence when he's talking to one of his comedian friends. And that versatility to engage different people is I think in large part his success. Now, if I if I may speak of myself, when I started my show seven years ago, I wanted to just have conversation. I mean, yes, with a lot of fellow professors, but I wanted to have conversations with anyone with whom I thought I would have a great conversation. So, hey, I, I think Buck Sexton is a cool guy. He's invited me many times on my show. I think we probably could have fun together. Let's chat. So do you think there are some, you know, uh, necessities as personality traits if you're going to be doing what we're doing right now, right here? Yeah, I, I think that I mean you said openness for someone like Joe Joe Rogan, um, and and I would say that the, you also have people will refer to in the media as as relatability, but that that often just comes across as somebody who understands there's always a way you know there, we always have that place where we can go as individuals with anybody, including with with an audience, 
where they know where we're coming from and there's some sense of, of a shared a shared understanding, um, uh, a shared curiosity, and to be able to convey that. I mean, one thing that I do a lot on my show is, I mean, I, I love, I spend my weekends and my, my girlfriend like makes fun of me, you know, not I mean, she's supportive of it, but I mean, I spend a lot of time on the weekends. My ideal Saturday afternoon is to stack up two or three history books and not, not self-help books, not novels, I just like history books and I'll sit there and I'll just, I'll read, you know, two or three chapters of one and then go two or three chapters of the next one and you know, I'll blow four or five hours of my weekend this way. You asked about how to do what we do. It's the same thing that I learned at the CIA. Uh, the, the most important skill trait or the most important habit of somebody in the intelligence world, and this is true, I'm sure, of Wall Street analysts and you know, academics or whatever, you just have to read all the time. Yes. Reading has, reading has to be something that you're constantly doing. If you feel like you're not spending enough time reading, it should be that you actually have to cut down your reading because there are other things you need to be doing. If you're not at that level, I think, yeah, yeah I mean, you're, you, you know, I mean, you're not in your head. If you're not at the point where you're like, I've read too much today, I need to like live life and do other things, you know, you're not really lining this up, I think, the way to do the kind of things that, that, that you and I do and many others. Um, so that would be an, another piece of it, I'd say. And I, with the reading thing, I got a little bit, um, oh, uh, but on, on the history side of it, uh, I tell my audience stories and, you know, uh, you know, right, right now I'm going deep into the, the 30 years war, for example, which a lot of people sound like that's something that would come up, you know, something that would come up in maybe an AP European history curriculum or something, you know, 1618 to 1648. And when you really dive into it, though, you, you see that the, the sense that we have of the modern world as uniquely evil and depraved because of the, the horrors of totalitarianism in the 20th uh, century, and God forbid, but possibly in the 21st, we'll see what happens with China and other places, but uh, y that actually we've gotten better as a species. Human beings are much less tolerant of horrific violence. Well, that's Steven Pinker's much. argument in one of his books, right? I don't know. If I you... haven't read that book, but I mean, I'm sure it's. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The... I, I, it sounds like I signed on to the thesis. The, yeah, yeah. The better, uh, the better side of our angels, or I can't remember the exact title, but it, he's basically he does a historical longitudinal analysis of exactly what you're talking about, and he points to the fact that today we are a lot less tolerant of things like slavery, animal cruelty, all sorts of diabolical things that were perfectly normalized in the past that today we we look at with great disgust. Yeah, that's one of the areas. I mean, even even on on the issue of slavery. We all say, and rightly, that it's it is the great moral stain from from America's founding up until you know the the abolition of slavery. It is also important to understand why it's so such an enormous step forward for humanity that slavery was essentially by all you know by all advanced uh, nation states uh, that that it was a leap forward for humanity to get rid of it as an institution. I know it still exists. There's you know, human trafficking, and it still exists in some parts of the Sudan. And but but you know there there are countries that are slave nation states, right? There, sure. There's not countries that are built. The Ottoman Empire was a slave state. People don't know this. The Ottoman Empire was seizing uh, white Christians from all over Europe, as far north as as Iceland and Ireland, um, and bringing them to the harems and the salt mines of, of North Africa, and I mean, horrific the same level of depravity, and, and this was in the 1600s, uh, mostly, it actually stretched for a couple hundred years, 
uh, the Aztec Empire, a slave empire, Native American tribes, who we all believe now were, you know, able to, to commune with nature and, you know, the, they were just running around and the, everything was beautiful and they had, you know, the, the deer and the eagles could talk to them, you know, the Pocahontas cartoon yeah. that we've seen uh, from Disney. And it was actually brutal warfare. Um, and in, so anyway, I, I think there's so much that people should know about the past that informs their present. And what one thing um, that I try to always tell my audience is the reason I'm telling them about this stuff is because I love learning it myself. Right. So there's they, they I try to bring them into that love of like, this is what I do on Saturday afternoon, guys. That's why I'm telling you about it. And it's never, well, here I am. I like to read big, thick, dusty books and tell you right. guys what I learned or something because I just love this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, think, I think that that can come across. And that's what a lot of academics, Scott, which I know you're actually you have an academic background. I think they lack that thing. Yeah. They yeah. lack the and you can always tell great teachers love the subject matter. And the kids, I mean the kids, the students, the you know, whatever, college kids, they love. So a lot a lot to unpack. Number one, uh uh, when you talked about the sort of the uh, the stereotype of the native Indians walking around, you know, singing John John Lennon, Imagine, and so on, there's actually a movement. I'll refer again to Steven Pinker here in his book, The Blank Slate. He talks about anthropologists of peace, and these are anthropologists who were promulgating the idea that until you know, evil white man came along. Everybody walked around completely in harmony, you know, with fig leaves over their genitalia, making love, not war and so on. And that's really this kind of a recent advance. Whereas, of course, in reality, never mind. I mean, you mentioned a whole bunch of cases of, of uh, slave traditions. How about Jews? I'm Jewish. Uh, what did Moses do? He freed us from slavery. How about Roman slavery? So the, the history of humanity is paved by rivers of blood. And yet our students today learn that, you know, slavery was a uniquely American thing, that, you know, violence is a uniquely white male toxicity manifestation. So there and, and hence the re one of the reasons why I wrote The Parasitic Mind is, is to try to fight back against this unbelievable set of never mind incorrect, but parasitic ideas that we teach in universities. And as you might imagine, Buck, it's not easy being an academic fighting against most academics who are promulgating this nonsense. So that's number one. Let me just mention a couple of other things because as you were speaking, I was thinking of this. I loved your read uh, edict because I keep telling my children who are you know, still quite young, but I want them to develop the reflex of loving to read, that the number one predictor of a child's success is the number of books that his or her parents have in the home. Uh, now, if that's if that's the true predictor, then my children are going to be very successful because I have an incredibly big personal library of books. And one of the things that stresses me the most, Buck, is I walk into my room sometimes, my study where I'm, we're taping right now, and I still probably have two to three hundred books in my personal library that I've yet to read. And I get an angst at the idea that there's this great knowledge that still hasn't made it to my brain. So this incessant desire to learn I think you're so spot on. It is probably the most fundamental predictor of you being successful or not. I also remember when I was younger, there were these campaign uh, campaigns that were just explicitly, you know, get your kids, read your kids and get your kids to read. And this was at least public service announcement kind of commercials that I'd see on Saturday morning cartoons and even 
and stuff like that. And, and I, I feel like that that's something I'd like to see more of. If we're going to have this constant messaging from the government and we haven't even gotten into CRT and public schools and all that, we will. we're going to have messaging. One thing, one thing that we can all, that anyone who knows anything should agree on is that reading is good. And I, I always also try to be very honest with my audience that I, I, you know, I think there would be this impulse to say, you know, who are the authors that that really got you? And I'll ask friends this too. Who who was the first author that got you really excited about reading when you when you were a kid? And, and how much when you think about it, that really has an impact on your life? Because I remember for me, there was a switch in about the fourth grade where all of a sudden there were books that I liked more than TV shows. So if I had the choice as a kid. I would actually go to the book and not the TV show, right? Or I'd go to the book and not Nintendo, which is what we had when I was growing up and was taking over everyone's brains. Um, and and for me, I, I don't sit here and say, oh, I my uh, my favorite book as a kid is Moby Dick, or I you know I, I learned I learned to read by picking up Shakespeare in the sixth grade. I mean, I think there are a lot of people that that always feel this need to. It's like they're in an English literature tr- uh, class and they're trying to impress their professor. Game changer for me, Michael Crichton. The oh. Jurassic Park, the Jurassic Park guy. I started ripping through, and and then Tom Clancy, which probably influenced the course of my life very directly with my my desire to go CIA, CIA. stuff. Yeah, of course. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, I I read all those those uh, not all of the Clancy books, but I read a lot of the Clancy books. I read almost all the Crichton books, but I mean, I owe on Michael Crichton. Sadly, is dead. He was a fascinating guy. I mean, that would be a guy, by the way, if we could bring somebody back from recent history to be on your show. Uh, Dr. Saad, I would say Michael Crichton, you guys no have a Oh I've my God. so many of his interviews. You know, it's funny you say this because I often sort of think to myself, who would be someone who's difficult to reach that I'd love to have? And so that, thank you for mentioning, I, I, I wouldn't, I didn't know that he would be such a great guest, but I can, I can understand why. Here are two guys that I would love to have on that are not sort of the traditional academic types and so on. I'd love to chat with Clint Eastwood, not, not because of that he's a, he's a star and so on, uh, you know, a movie star because he because of first his his sort of non woke you know bent, uh, and of course both you know I grew up in Lebanon watching the spaghetti westerns with this you know larger than life guy who never spoke but went into every town and was the hero. So he's kind of he's entrenched in my childlike mind, and so I I think I would love to chat with him. The other guy may or may not surprise you, and I don't know if you know who he is. Do you know who Bert Bacharach is? I want to. I mean, I feel like I've heard the name, but I couldn't even so, tell you who so it is. So, Burt Bacharach. If you think of every, probably every song that was kind of iconic in the '60s and '70s, the Carpenters and the, whatever, it, he was the guy who wrote all those songs. He's now also in his '90s, probably a guy that you know doesn't do much media. I don't. I, I never see him on media. But these would probably be some of the guys that I would love to talk to. Who who would be? Of course, other than having me on your show, who would be someone else that you would be desperate to have on your show that you haven't gotten to yet? Uh, well, you know, unfortunately, a, a couple of them have passed away. I, I mentioned, you know, Crichton. I think he died of uh, thyroid cancer, throat cancer, uh, maybe 10 years ago now. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who also, I believe, died Oh, of I love him. I, I, I wish I never got the pleasure of meeting him, but he's, he's one of my top guys. I agree. Yeah, he would he would have been a really interesting guy to sit down with. And I always felt like the mark of this when you go back and you look at some of the old interview shows and and even debate shows, which, you know, God, those used to exist. They don't exist now. It's all it's uh, crossfire on CNN. You remember that? 
Yeah, well, I left because it was it turned into a joke after a while. I mean, they, they so the reason CNN hired me, and then I'll get back to the Hitchens thing. But the reason CNN really hired me was that I had, especially at that time, a still very recent and and solid knowledge of all things uh, counterterrorism. So U.S. government policy and, and intelligence community stuff around you know, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Hezbollah, you know, you name it, all, all these different uh, terrorist entities, AQI, AQAP, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab. I mean, these were all second If, if only there was some sort of ideology that unified all these groups, maybe we need some nuanced thinkers to help us out. But because you're probably yeah. not smart enough, and I know I'm certainly not smart enough to know if there's an ideology that unifies all these. I don't know what it is, but go ahead. There was a whole industry of people who would go on TV and, and their job was just to pretend that there was nothing in that moment in time, in that sort of snapshot of the world from 2001 to, let's say, 2020, roughly, or 2000, really, really slowed down a lot in 2016, quite honestly, when Trump came into office. But let's say from 2001 or 2016, there was a whole industry of people whose only job was to go on TV and say, if you think there's any commonality or similarity in the ideologies of Boko Haram al-Shabaab, AQI, right. AQAP, uh, ISIS, uh, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. You know, you get, if you think there's any connection between these groups. You're a bigot. You're a bigot. Yeah. And that was their whole job. And, and, and they, I mean, I understand that they felt like they were helping an oppressed group or whatever, even though I, the, the fascinating thing about Islam is that globally it's a gigantic and dominant power in many places. It's not really a, we think of it in America as a, as a religious minority group yeah. that must be protected from persecution. And then that thinking uh, f- filters out to the way we view, oh my gosh, you know, we, we, we don't want to get, we don't want to be too, uh, we, don't, we don't want to criticize too much the role of, of militant Islam in Nigeria. Well, I mean, it's, there, there are 80 million Muslims in Nigeria, about 80 million Christians. Now the numbers have probably even gone up a little bit more yeah. on both sides. And they're not a, you know, they're not a minority group there that's that's fearing for their safety and has to be coddled, essentially. There's so, a lot of coddling. So when I just just to be just so I could follow. So when I ran away with my family to make sure that my head was not separated from the rest of my body, I wasn't running away from in Lebanon. I wasn't running away from insurrectionists, Trump supporters and other white supremacists. Apparently not. Although I, I, I wish you could have been on TV back in those CNN days when they would put these just these really smarmy uh, leftists who in particular their favorite was they would put on somebody who was nominally Muslim and BIPOC. And their whole job was to was to basically show up on TV and say anybody who thinks that the guy who's walking around saying into his phone, I'm doing this in the name of Islam, I'm doing this for Allah is in any way Muslim is a racist. There was a whole industry of people of who that was there. And what was, what was amazing to me is I was also a guy who would show up and say, which which race, if we're going to talk about racism yeah. in the context of Islamophobia, which race exactly are we talking about? But again, that's I'm, I'm getting back. I, should I bring us back to Hitchens? Because that's Get, where, Let's go back uh, to I Hitchens and then I want to come back to Islam. But go ahead. Yeah, I'm loving this. Go uh, ahead. Hitchens is another one of those guys who, and there are very few of them, I think, who you could tell was equally interesting for people. And I've, I mean, I, as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at I've got, you know, three or four Hitchens books sitting on my shelf that, you know, I, I, I read. And that's I don't think it's bragging to say you've read Hitchens books because they're just really readable and really good. It's really easy to get through them. You know, it's like telling somebody, in my view, you've read Harry Potter books just with better writing and more more thought. Um, but the 
the thing about Hitchens was that if you were a leftist and you sat down with him or you were a staunch conservative, you found the experience worthwhile and illuminating. And I think there's so little of that these days. Everyone is just the what works is pandering yeah. in the marketplace of ideas right now. What works is tell people exactly what they want to hear. And it's it's and that, by the way, that's how we get to your, your about the parasitic mind and the ossification of the synapses of particularly the leftist mind comes in part, I think, from this. They're just being told what they want to hear all the time. They turn on CNN, nothing. That's why I knew that Fauci was a little fraud. And then I want I know you want to get back to the other subject, but Fauci was a little fraud because somehow he never upset the left. Yeah. And to be making the kind of calls he did and pushing the policies that he did where there's a both sides to the argument every time and only upset one side, you, that, that's really all you had to know about who he was and what his M.O. was. But anyway. Well, but just to, to say about Fauci, I mean, the fact that he's been in this position, you know, since the dark ages, I think he first assumed that position in 1327. Uh, that already speaks ill of, you know, the kind of the career bureaucrat, because you'd like to think that at some point you have some sense of shame, if not humility, that, you know, maybe it's time for someone else to assume this position. But clearly what we've seen during the whole COVID lockdown is that this guy is a real celebrity hound. I mean, he loves, I mean, I think Dana Perino on uh, Fox often says, because she used to be a communications uh, person, she always says, you know, Dr. Fauci, you could once in a while refuse to go on a show, right? I mean, he has no modulation of which show he should appear on or how often he should. He just loves being in the limelight. And I would have much rather have him, you know, leave his position and let some new blood come in. But apparently he's too intoxicated by his own voice, right? I, I think that's absolutely true. When you've been a bureaucrat for almost 50 years, which is amazing when you think about that, that duration of working for the government, and you're, you know you're in, you're in your golden years uh, and you have an opportunity to have your name ring through the ages as the great savior of the pandemic. Look, this stuff is seductive. Yeah. You know, people are, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of, and I, I need to look and see if it's, I think it's Munger who is Warren Buffett's number two, Charlie Munger says, show me, although it might be Buffett, who's credited with saying, show me the incentive and I'll show you the result. And I, I think that's very important for people to remember all the time. And when you look at somebody like Dr. Fauci, his choice is either to step into the background, let the politicians make the decisions, provide them with information, and he just goes out, you know, however many years he's got left as the guy who basically spent 50 years being wrong about HIV during that pandemic starting in the 80s. Uh, he was wrong about it a lot, if you go back and look at the record, in ways that were meaningful and, and really destructive. And then, uh, you know, later on to be the guy that was warning us all to wash our hands during flu season and no one really paid attention. Uh, he can do that or he can be a superhero guy. Which one do you think he wants? That's that's really what it came yeah, down to. Yeah, exactly. And he fell into it. I, I hear you. Uh, let's come back to Islam for a second. Uh, before we do that, I'm just tying up a whole bunch of loose ends because we're covering so many cool things. Uh, Glenn Beck, you mentioned him earlier. I just wanted to close the parenthesis on this. I got to meet him when he invited me. Down. I've done a show several times, but we, we met in person when he invited me down to his new amazing you know facilities. And uh, I got to tell you, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, he, he, he oozes of personal charm, right? I mean, so contrary to what you would think 
of the you know i mean he's he's a he's a big celebrity he's a very wealthy mm-hmm. guy he could be arrogant he could be obnoxious his humility his deferential nature i mean it, it, just what a lovely guy, and, and it angers me so much. Every time I post something, oh, I'm going to appear on Glenn Beck's show or something, people will, will I probably should never read those comments, but people will write all kinds of horrible things. And the reality is when you meet him, he is such a lovely, warm human being. So anyways, I thought maybe if you want to comment on that and then we'll yeah, go back to the Yeah, I, I went off on a pretty, a pretty uh, uh, long tangent on my radio show recently just saying how because I heard that Glenn had said very nice things when I was when I was announced as the co-host in the twelve to three for for Rush, um, and you know the reason this is, I think it's very clear to people why why would they go with two hosts instead? It's because no one no one no one voice uh, was going to be able to to even try to pick up the the sword and shield so to speak after Rush in that slot. So they wanted to try something new and and throw essentially two voices. It's like a two heads is better than one yeah. uh, approach to, to filling the biggest the biggest shoes in radio. And Clay is a, is a great talent and a really really uh, smart guy. So they just figured if we put these two guys together, we're going to have something really worth listening to. And I hope folks will, will give it a shot. Um, but Glenn said very kind things about it, and it just I went on my show to say one I appreciate it, and two I just that's just who that's who Glenn is. He's unbelievable. He's always been a very generous guy. Uh, he gave me my start, you know, when I, uh, I worked for him for six years and I'll say this about him too. We were talking about skills before when Glenn is in the zone, yeah. when he's really in his storytelling and communication sweet spot, he has, he's better than other people who do this for a living in a way where you go, Oh, okay. I I get why he's Glenn back. You know, he, he actually can do sometimes, I don't know if it's a, there are sports you're really, you're really into watch. I'm not a big professional sports watcher, but I played sports growing up and I, I watch now, but you, you'll see somebody who can do something in sports. Sometimes, sometimes it's even just, you know, one, one play, but you'll see them do it and you'll go, okay, this person's like, this is why they're, you know, the reigning champion. This is why Glenn has that ability when he's telling a story, doing a radio show and really in his, in his zone, I don't know how to say. No, I'm gonna I'm yeah. gonna build on what you just said. So I and this is actually available. Uh, uh, you you could probably find it somewhere on Google uh, when I appeared on his show. Uh, and so this was in person. This is before COVID, and we were having this very intense. I think it was like two hour conversation or something. And you know, he's very much as you said in the zone in the following sense. He's present. He's there. You can you can feel that he's listening to you. And at one point, as I'm telling explaining something, he, he had this you know, very intense stare and this, you know, smile on his face. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm very sort of genuine person, very authentic. So I look at him and I say, well, what's up with that smile? Well, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, you know, I just, I just love you, man. I wish you were my neighbor or something like that. And, and that authenticity was something that I thought was so endearing. He's right there. He's with you. And I think that's a rare skill. Even for people who are professional conversationalists, they don't necessarily have that focus. Yeah, there are people who are very useful on the right for what they do. Uh, I mean, making this about political media for a second, and and I appreciate their work. And they're jerks. Yeah. There are they're they're not nice people. I won't ask they're you to name any names. No, of course. You, I mean, because you already know that I wouldn't. You know, I, by the <laughs> way, I'm I'm a thou shalt not attack your fellow conservatives guy because we're we're such a small piece of the overall puzzle yeah. or the overall pie. Better than puzzle. 
Uh, we're such a small you know, slice of, of, the, of the media, the news media, and, and really the commentary media. Because I, I borrow, you know, do you know, you know who you should have on your show? Go. Who's alive? <laughs> so <I'm> like, Winston <laughs> Churchill. You know who you should have on your show? Naval Ravikant. Do you know Naval? I don't. Who's this? N-A-V-A-L. Have him on your show. Okay. Brilliant, brilliant guy. I don't know him. I know his brother, who's a dear friend of mine. Um, but he is a very successful VC investor. Uh, if you look up NAVAL on Twitter, you'll see his stuff. I, I can't even really Oh, he's he the a- guy who's got one million followers on Twitter? Naval, Probably. And it, but you never see his face. It's right. Yes. Oh, yes. I, I've just peripherally seen him on my feed, but I have no idea who he was. Okay, very interesting. Okay. You should, you and Naval, I mean, like that, you tell me when that is. I, by the way, I listen. I have I do so much of my own content, but you tell me when that is. You and him sitting down, I'm I'm making an, an appointment to download it and listen to it. Oh, you guys thank you. You know what? I'm excited. I'm gonna check this guy out. Maybe you'll help us uh, connect with each other. Yeah, if I can help, if I, if I could, uh, I'll I'll get his contact from. Um, but I, I think if you reach out, you should be, you know, especially look. You're kind of in the, not to be that guy, but you're kind of in the. Joe Rogan Club, you know. So uh, you, you know, mean you mean? Sorry, let me like correct you. Been, I think what you meant to say is Joe Rogan. Joe, so like now, anybody will have you on their show. I know, but just small correction. What you meant to say, I think, is that Joe Rogan is in the God Side Club. But That's right. On. He's yeah. in. He's in the uh, the Great Society of Honey Badgers. Uh, which, <laughs> by the way, if you haven't already started selling gear and you know, I know, I know, podcast the, the Honey Badger thing, dude. That's got to be. That's your mascot. That's your coat of arms, man. It's a yeah, great. You're right. It's so important, especially in this era, for people to realize: stop giving a you know what so much, people, about what other people think or tell you. Find what is right. Do what is right, and you know, come what may. Amen, brother. All right, let's go back to Islam and your CIA because we, we can't leave this conversation without you telling us some exciting stories from your days in CIA. Now, I happen to be a nightmare for all those highfalutin, obnoxious folks that you were mentioning earlier because you can't say, oh, but you don't understand the Middle East. Well, I do. I was born there, grew up there. Well, but you don't understand what they say because you don't speak Arabic. Well, no, that's not true because Arabic is my mother tongue. And so as you go through each of the delegitimization mechanisms that they try to do, uh, I pass each of them with flying colors. So to, to, to de- delegitimize me, you have to go down to number 17 in the queue where you say, but you never studied uh, Islamic uh, theology at Al-Azhar University in Egypt and you're not an imam. Aha, that de- plus you're Jewish, so clearly you must be a Zionist. Now in your case... You know, you don't, or do you speak Arabic, by the way? I took it. I, I probably could ask you to help me get the fresh chicken or something. That's about <laughs> it right now. My, I do not have, you know, I do not have any Arabic skills, but no. So when you were working at the CIA, were most of the folks that were, I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly what you were doing and you can, if whatever you can share, you would be happy to hear about it. But were they ma- mainly Westerners or were there a lot of, you know, Arabic native speakers and people from the Middle East who worked within your unit? So I, I essentially did a lot of analytic support and and uh, my, my group did analytic and targeting support, uh, intel support for the military. So that was really so I spent time. My, my CIA experience was working with either from Langley or, or from overseas, um, you know, working with the United States military and, and usually some of the elite units that would do uh, high level 
uh, high level grabs, you know, go after the I mean, if you've seen Zero Dark Thirty, you kind of get some sense of there's the the door kicking, uh, you know, ground pounders from the elite special operations command. And then there are the kind of, you know, look like they're on a camping trip or something. Uh, guys who could be guys and gals who could be from a McKinsey conference were wearing like a baseball hat and they're like, hey, here's the file on this guy. Go get him. I was, you know, I was kind of one of those, one of those people. I was handing over, I was handing over the file to Captain America. I was, uh, I was by no means doing any Captain America it's, stuff. It's myself. funny that you, you're saying this. Forgive me for interrupting you, uh, Buck, because earlier today I was telling my wife, we went for coffee. Uh, I was telling her, oh, I was going to chat with you. And she says, well, what's his background? I said, oh, you know, CIA. So at first she asked me, you know, she, she thought of the kind of the, the Captain America. I said, well, I don't think he was the Captain America guy, but still important. So, Apparently, women will salivate a lot more about the Captain America archetype than the, 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 the ones who are doing the bean counting in the background, even though they're just as important. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I, my, my way that I usually explain the CIA to people who ask is the first mission parameter on every CIA mission abroad is where do we put the cappuccino machine? So <laughs> give you a sense of, you know, we got a, I will admit, so I did do some para, some what you would consider paramilitary training maybe or something. You know, I did do the some of the, and it's really mostly for, it was for, for self-defense. So it wasn't, um, I, I wasn't learning to clear rooms and do things that, you know, special operations or rangers or any of these guys do. Um, uh, but, you know, you, you did get the basics of it because you're being thrown into a war zone and yeah. you need to be able to, if you get hit in a convoy, you know, do you want to have a rifle and be able to shoot back or do you want to just sit there and, and be done? Um, so we got some of that training and stuff. I'll never forget where we had this guy uh, who was a military, military side and he was doing some of the training for us. And he's just like, well, you know, I know there are a lot of latte drinkers here today, <laughs> which was funny because, God. I love lattes. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, as a matter of fact, sir, yes. So that was uh, my CX experience. I mean, for the, in terms of the cooler stuff, um, I mean, it was it was amazing to be up late at night and be you know in a military uh, military installation and see what the elite operators, what those guys could do, and, and just what their mission set was. And you know, they were they were going after head choppers. I mean, they were going after evil jihadist sadists uh and they were going in kicking it and i was watching sometimes you know you watch in real time as they would do this stuff uh not right next to them you're watching you know yeah, on the street because yeah. obviously technology allows you to see what's going on um i i managed i briefed the president on something uh when i in the oval office i think i was 27 or 28 at wow. the time who, who was the president uh, it was Bush, George W. Okay. I never, never got invited in to brief Obama. My ah. politics weren't known then outside the office, but inside the office, everybody. Everyone always knew that I was like some crazy right winger. Uh, but I, I went in and, and talked. I actually briefed Bush twice. Um, so that was really interesting. I mean, to be at that level and at that age and to sit there and be talking to him. And, and the reason I got into the Oval was because uh, I told my, that my bosses were going to have somebody – I was going to have a gray hair, no offense, sit down with me and I was going to explain to him what I knew because I just came back from Iraq and he was then going to present that on behalf of the intelligence community to the president. And I sort of said to the bosses, I'm like, uh, I mean, if he really wants to go into detail on this, like I just got back from from overseas and, and I have the most expertise on this particular issue, this particular question, and we're only going to have, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to talk about it. So why not just send me? 
And they were like, to their credit, you got a point. So that's, they did. Ba- that's ballsy. Yeah, it was. God it damn. <laughs> so, uh, how, were, you, were you nervous to meet him? Uh, the first time I went to the Oval, I was... And I wasn't nervous about saying the wrong thing or anything else. The first time I went to the Oval, I, I had two considerations that were that were nerves because it was I mean it was Bush it was Bush it was Cheney it was the national security advisor uh, it was the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff I believe or maybe it was the Iraq Afghanistan czar you know the military I forget I mean it, it's been a while um, but there are all these different people in the room the two things was that one I I know I, I I look young now I mean I look really young then and that is a credibility issue for some people even though yeah. It, you know, you're, you're 26, 27. I'm like, Alexander the Great did a lot by my age. Like, <laughs> maybe we think differently about this. But uh, so, the, so there was the, I look young, this might be a credibility challenge. And then also there was the uh, consideration of, I just don't want to trip and become like a cautionary tale. You know, yeah, yeah, right. I don't want to, I don't want to splash coffee all over the president of the United States lap my first time in the Oval Office. But it went fine. You know, I I had the uh, Dean Kane recently, the you know the guy who played Superman, lovely guy by the way. Such a nice guy. Oh, I, nice I gotta guy. tell you, I, I'm developing a major bromance crush on this guy, and, and I knew we'd have a great time because every time I've seen him on one of these shows, he just exudes this aura of such authenticity, just and lovely guy. Anyways, uh, we were chatting at one point. Uh, uh, that show hasn't aired yet. Uh, it'll, it's on the queue of upcoming guests. And uh, he's he's had a chance to meet, uh, I think, several presidents, but most famously, I think Ronald Reagan had invited him to, to meet him at some point. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I often kind of judge American presidents based on what I consider, you know, would I have a good time inviting them over for Lebanese dinner? And And, you know, Bush just seems like a good old boy, super sweet, kind of seems like a humble guy. Of course, Ronald Reagan. And, and I don't mean this, I don't mean this as a political partisanship issue. Whereas, you know, Donald Trump seems like he's going to suck the, the air out of the room because all of the attention has to be on him. Barack Obama, you know, he's his majesty, Barack Obama. So the, the narcissism that he exudes is probably going to suffocate the rest of us. So you get a sense of these people. And Bush, to me, seems like a kind of guy that I want to be hanging out having a gelato with. A gelato with. Is, is, my, is my impression correct? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you could definitely. You and you and Bush could, could sit down and have some shishtauk. Uh, <laughs> Look at have you. A great time. Now, I'm, there's the word H-U-M-M-U-S. Can you pronounce it? And based on whether you pronounce it properly or not, will determine whether moving forward we're going to be friends or not. Go. Oh, man, this is a, this is a high bar. Hummus. That's, that's fair. You know what? All right, you're in the in team. Because usually, right. I, usually I hear Hamas, Hummus, Hamas. It's Hummus. <laughs> so well done. Uh, a couple of more questions, and I know you're t- you, you have another meeting to go to, so I want to be respectful of your time. A couple of sort of personal questions. Number one. Do you have any regrets? Now, let me ask you why I'm, let me tell you why I'm asking this, because one of the things I'm doing in my next book is I have a chapter on sort of how do you live your life so that you can try to mitigate as much as possible the risk of looking back at your life and having any regrets. Now, you're still a young man, but, you know, we all have regrets, whether we're 20 or 80. Uh, Now, regret can usually come in two forms. It can either come from 
regret due to an action. You know, I regret that I cheated on my wife. By the way, that's not true. I'm being hypothetical. On the other hand, you could have regret due to inaction. I regret that I never pursued my career in, in media and I went into accounting because my dad wanted me to. Uh, usually most people, their greatest source of regret comes from inaction rather than action. If I were to ask you that question today, what would it be for you? I can say that at this stage of my career and really having had two mini careers, uh, I, I went honey badger. I mean, I came out of college and wanted to do CIA right away. First job I applied for, it's what I wanted, I got it. And then instead of going to a you know esteemed MBA program and ended up ending up uh, at some company or firm or something and you know making a nice salary and having a comfortable life, I decided YOLO. I'm going to go work for. I love Glenn, but you know he's he's a little zany, right? I mean, it was a, it was a risk at the time in a yeah. sense. You know, who knows? He was starting his own company. Um, and I just YOLO'd it and uh, shook his hand and said, I'm all in. I always remember that. I shook his hand and said, I'm all in, Glenn. And I was. Um, so professionally, I actually don't have any regrets. Um, I would say personally and in terms of personal development, I wish I had thought about uh, being serious about finding – like I'm not married. I've got a great girlfriend now and you know we're, we're moving toward the, the, big, uh, the big M. But um, – I wish I had been more deliberate about my life personally at a younger age and not sort of viewed it just as, um, uh, what's the word, uh, entertainment or amusement. Um, I think I think people, guys in particular, it's like, I'm gonna blow my 20s on you know, partying and, and hanging out with the most beautiful, fun women I can and not think at 24, 25, okay, maybe I don't need to get married right now, but I, I should think about you know, how, how will I find that? What is that person like? Right. You know, I, I had never really even thought of who I wanted to marry. My dad. I was just running around, you know, doing stuff that guys do. Uh, so that would be one thing. And then just also, I look back now with the way that I try to deploy my time, uh, Gad, and I, I wasted time because I thought that I could, it was really easy for me to always be a B plus. Mm. You know, it was always easy to be a B plus. I was, I was loquacious enough and savvy enough and to figure out how to, with minimum effort, in so many different ways, whether it was you know it was sports, academics, I was always a B plus. And it wasn't until I really got into my 20s and realized like, well, if I wanna be an A in anything, I don't just mean this in the academic sense, I gotta actually have those things, I've gotta have discipline and grit and persevere, you know, and, and that mindset shit. So I, I think that took me 10 years longer than I wish it had. That would be my regret. Um, and I'm still working on it every day now, but that, I was a little bit of a, um, little bit of a, of a dilettante in being the best buck I can be from 18 to you know, 30. Well, it's all, it's all turned out really well. Uh, last question. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've tried. It's, okay. it's gone okay. Last yeah. question before I ask you if you have anything to, to, to promote, although you don't necessarily need my little small platform Shoot, to promote. Man. I want more of the Buck Sexton Show podcast. People got to listen to it. It's separate from the radio show. Keep ah, going. All right. Uh, uh, you and I offline have been talking about uh, our respective weight loss journeys uh, and you've asked me, uh, it was very nice of you to ask how I was able to do it so far. And I continue to do quite well. Where are you in your weight loss journey? Where do you want to get to? When do you think you'll get there? 
stalled out, man. I, I was about over the course of the pandemic, I went from about 200 pounds, which for me is, you know, I kind of fit into all my clothes well. And, you know, you, you know, I don't I don't not not too many people are calling me a fat ass when I go on TV and stuff. I mean, 200, I'm six feet tall. So 200 pounds is pretty, pretty, pretty healthy weight. Um, and I've always liked lifting weights. That's one of the uh, I got up to like 218. Okay, that's not so it, disastrous. I have thoughts that weigh 18 pounds, man. <laughs> what the hell? So I got up to I got up to 218 and and it was all just it was just walrus blubber, man. It was not good. And and I've gotten down now as I speak to you to 210. That's pretty good. So I've gotten almost half, but I've I've been at 210 for like 6 weeks now. I've really sort of and I, I know what it is, man. I I'm I keep thinking a little more time, a little more consistency, a little more time in the gym, and and then you know I've got a work dinner and I just I hit some ribeye and a side of mashed potatoes and two or three glasses of red wine and I don't even want to do the math on that and that's where I skip am, so. the wine, skip the potatoes, stick with the ribeye, do fifteen thousand steps a day, and you will be joining me in the one eighty club very soon. By the way. Yeah, how far down are you, dude? How far down? One eighty-nine, but I'm shorter than you, so my ideal uh, weight would probably be around high one sixties, low one seventies. So, but as I always remind people, if I get to that level of thinness, it causes social incohesion, mayhem. It causes marital instability. So by being a bit plump, I'm actually being societally altruistic. That's why I always You're have saving, to... Keep... This, this is like from uh, you know medieval times. You're saving women from having impure thoughts. Guy, exactly which very... right. It's a religious form of altruism that I'm engaging in. So thank you, world. My fat is your salvation. Wait, but uh, what, what, what was your peak? What was the top? Oh, you know, the I, I hate to admit one? it and... Thank you for asking such a pointed question. Uh, the highest that I know of, it's going to shock the hell out of you. That's why I wasn't impressed with your 218. I was 256. And, that's, I, um, and that's I am public. substantially that's shorter You're keeping than Mrs. You. God warm at night. <laughs> I, was, I was really keeping her warm. I think she couldn't fit in the bed. She had to sleep on the floor. I was so big. So, uh, so you know, I'm in my 50s. It was really time to get serious. I have young children. Even one time I was uh, with Joe Rogan and he asked me to do a particular exercise and I couldn't do it. And he looks at me, he goes, come on, man, you have young kids, get it together or something like that. I said, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm tired of Joe Rogan fat shaming me. I'm going to shove all my weight loss, uh, weight loss up his rectum. And so right now I'm actually much thinner than him. So there you go, Joe, if you're listening. Uh, hey, Buck, I'm going to let you go. It's time for you to go on your to your next meeting. Any last things? You said Buck Sexton. Anything else that people should know about what you're doing up next? I, I want very intelligent, discerning people to listen to my podcast or at least download it, listen when they can. I'm launching this huge show with Clay Travis. I mean, again, the one of the, if not the biggest, this probably the second or third biggest radio show in America. I think it'll probably be the biggest, honestly. Um, but I do a podcast every day as well. I'm going to continue to do that, which will be the Buck Sexton show. So it would be my honor. I will tell you when I used to do radio by far, the single biggest, um, uh, point of, of commonality for listeners when they would say who they listen to, I would get people say, I only listen to two people on radio, you and rush. Not, I mean, wow. it was uh, 50 to one for other radio hosts. They'd say, I listened to so-and-so and you, it was rush and you, that was always the way it was. In part, because I used to fill in for him, I think. But 
Um, I just say this as a as a an open an open request to anyone who listens to to Gad. I want to listen to my radio. I mean, my uh, podcast rather too, because this is a discerning and worthwhile audience. So please Thank check you, out sir. the podcast. Continued show success. Podcast. I only see incredible things for you in the future. Thank you for taking time to be on my show. I know you're 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 a very busy guy. Stay in touch. Uh, I'll just say goodbye to you offline. So don't don't leave. Thank you so much, Buck. Great. Thank you.